morning, we're in Mark 9, 30 through 32. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for our time in the word. Uh, I pray that you would be here with us, uh, giving us wisdom and illumination. Uh, Your word, reading it, it just seems plain sometimes, but it's just difficult for us to understand. Your ways aren't our ways, and uh, your mind is infinitely incomprehensible to us. So I pray that you would just give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and give us a fruitful time of worshiping you through the word this morning, and that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Each of us are strongly influenced by the culture, the world that we live in. And our culture is obsessed with celebrity, with fame, with greatness. However, when we come to a text like we're going to look at this morning, we see that the world just gets greatness all wrong. Jesus will explain to us what true greatness is is and it will be exactly opposite of what the culture says and as we live in this world and as we are affected and its priorities and its stance just seeps into our life somewhat it becomes really an uphill culture counter-cultural battle for us to understand what true greatness looks like what kingdom greatness is as it's defined for us in the scripture give you a spoiler alert you're not great because you can throw a football 70 yards you're not great because you top the music charts or you have a number one single you're not great because you've acquired a lot of wealth possessions that you can go on vacation where only the wealthy can go you're not great because you've moved up the ladder and you're a boss Now people are forced to honor you because of your position. And I hate to break it to all you beautiful people, but you're not even great because you're beautiful or handsome. These are things that just do not define greatness. And yet for all of us, it's important we hear this this morning because in our time and place, in culture, we get sucked into this striving for rank striving for notoriety, looking to influencers, looking to celebrity, trying to create greatness around us, greatness for ourselves. And Jesus this morning is going to turn that right upside down on its head. And hopefully, I pray, we will get a biblical perspective of greatness. You heard read for you verses 30 through 32. We'll go all the way through 41 this morning. But in 30 through 32, Jesus is in Galilee. If you remember the first part of his ministry here in Mark, really the first eight chapters, that's where he is. He's just going back and forth across the Sea of Galilee, uh, presenting his ministry and showing who he is. Who is Jesus? He is the divine son of God. 
And we see that in his power and his authority. And Peter finally confesses that in chapter 8. And so they're here in Galilee and they are getting ready to move forward to Jerusalem. In fact, this will be the last time that Galilee is mentioned until after the resurrection. And so even geographically sets up for us what this text looks like is we've seen who Jesus is and now we will see what his mission is where is he going and he immediately reveals how now for the second time he foretells what his mission is and he speaks plainly to the disciples that he must suffer he will be rejected he will die and he will rise again You understand, this is the mission of Jesus. This is the plan from the Father before the foundation of the world. Covenanted among the Trinity. That Jesus Christ, Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world, would die for our sins. This this is the answer to the promise in Genesis 3.15, all the way back after the fall of man. Where the promise is, I'll give you a son, and he will set you free from the curse of the fall. But he will experience a bruising of the heel, is how it is said in Genesis 3.15. The cross, where he is going, this rejection, this suffering, this death, this is that bruising of the heel. This will be the fatal blow that he experiences from the rejection of man. What Jesus is telling us here, the cross, this is his plan and his purpose. This is the answer to the covenant made with Abraham. That indeed, how will he he make the nations his people? How will his presence dwell with man? How will they be blessed and be called his children? Because Jesus Christ is going to lay down his life. And as the firstborn son, we will receive life and an inheritance in him. This is the answer to the covenant with David. How will he become a great king who will rule and reign forever? Well, his glory, we see, it comes through the cross. He will lay down his life before he is highly exalted. This is the answer to the prophets as they laid out of a prophet. One who would come and Jesus once again takes it and he takes this title for himself, the Son of Man. And we look back that he is claiming this prophecy from Daniel. The Son of Man, one who is glorious and powerful who will come. And the Ancient of Days will stand and give him all glory and power and dominion. His kingdom will be established. And the confusion for the disciples comes in is that he's taking that and at the same time he's merging it with the prophecy of Isaiah of the suffering servant. Of one who will be rejected, one who will be despised, one who will be ashamed and beaten and mocked and scorned and killed. And he's saying the son of man to receive this dominion and power, it will run through the cross. It will run through the suffering and shame and again he lays it out here for his disciples And it's interesting, he actually is speaking that it's already starting to take place. You can't necessarily see it there, but in the Greek, as he begins in verse 31 there, for he is teaching his disciples, the Son of Man is going to be delivered. It has the idea of a present progressive. That is, it's already happening. The process has already started. He's going to be delivered into the hands of men. And what you have here is what they call a divine passive. That is that the unspoken subject behind it is God himself. And what Jesus is doing is he's lifting the quotation from Isaiah 53. He's lifting that language of the Father. It would please the Father to turn the Son over. It would please the Father 
that the son would be beaten and wounded and scarred for our transgressions and for our salvation. He's saying this must happen. This is the plan. This is how it will happen. And our whole hope as Christians lie in this happening. And of course he attaches at the end as he always does. That yes there will be suffering but there will be glory. And we see that in his resurrection. And just as disciples will share in his suffering. They will also share in his resurrection. And once again we see the disciples don't understand it. Again, it's easy for us to sit here with full revelation and a whole bunch of commentaries and looking back a couple thousand years and think, how do they not get it? But again, you remember our example. For them, this is all, they're, they're trying to piece the prophecies together. It's all dimly lit for them. They just don't fully understand how the Son of Man is the suffering servant and how all of this makes sense and how victory is going to come through death. And so Mark tells us straightway that Verse 32, they did not understand what he's saying, but they're afraid to ask him. They've, last time Peter asked him, he got called Satan. So this time he's a little hesitant to, to throw another objection out there. But we see in verses 33 through 37 that indeed they didn't get it. Verses 33 through 37. This is almost comical how this starts. And it's comical not because I'm... We laugh at the disciples, but because we can put ourselves in this place. So Jesus is separate from the disciples. They've been talking among themselves, and Jesus comes into the room where they are and says, hey, what have you guys been talking about? And there's just silence. (laughs) Their silence betrays them, because what they've been talking about is which one of them is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. You see that there. Verse 33, when he came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? They kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Have you done that while you walk in on a group? Maybe you found yourself. I'll tell a story on Adam. I can tell stories on Adam. He's gone now. Adam and I went to college together and we were in this discussion with another guy. And it was just a theological discussion. I don't even remember what it was about. And the other guy started crying. I don't know why, but it was like, why is this guy crying about this discussion? So that's the backstory. A few days later, we're in a car. Adam and I are in the front. There's a couple of people in the back. I'm telling Adam this, rehearsing this story about the guy crying, and I'm like mocking him. Going, oh. Well, I forgot that the guy's sister was sitting in the back seat, <laughs> and she goes, what are you guys talking about? And we were silent, <laughs> just like they were. Your mind scrambling, and I think we were just like, okay, you guys want something from Burger King? Let's stop. You know, you just, <laughs> you got caught. And that's what's happened here. The disciples are silent, but Jesus knows what they have been talking about. They've been arguing who will be the greatest in the kingdom. I'm sure Peter had his thing to say. He seems to be the leader of the pack. He speaks for him. It would make sense he would think he was the greatest. Maybe James and John, the sons of thunder. Maybe they thought they would be the greatest. Maybe the other disciples who weren't loving that they got left out of the transfiguration mountain climb. Maybe they're a little upset. Who knows how the argument's going. But they know enough that when Jesus asked, they know that they shouldn't have been talking in this way. You remember, it wasn't long ago, a couple weeks probably in a timeline, a few verses for us, 
that when Jesus announced, when Peter confesses who he is as the Lord, Jesus announces for the first time that he is going to suffer and die and rise again. And immediately what followed that time was, you need to lay down your life. You need to take up your cross. You need to lay down your life. To lose is gain. They don't understand it in that moment. And now Jesus tells them again just a a couple weeks later, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to die. Here's what my Messiahship looks like. Their discipleship is supposed to look like that. But what immediately they start applying their discipleship is rank and position. <laughs> Who, which one of us is going to be the, 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 the best, the greatest? Where's the taking up your cross? Where's the laying down of your life? They understand that Jesus is headed to Jerusalem and they must have thought, okay, this is go time. His kingdom is finally going to be established here. And we're going to be with him. Which one of us is going to be standing at his shoulder? Which one of us is going to be the lieutenant as his kingdom is established? And that's the argument. And the juxtaposition of these two things, of Jesus talking about laying down his life, that Jesus came to serve, with the disciples arguing who would be the greatest, really shows us the juxtaposition of greatness in this age that is passing away compared to true greatness, which is marked by humility, which is marked by suffering. This is going to happen again in a couple of chapters. Jesus will again for the third time. Spoiler alert, the disciples are immediately going to start arguing again which one of them is greater. (laughs) They just don't seem to get it. This idea of greatness in the kingdom. And the problem is, is that they want the glory without the cross. They want the resurrection and the glory without the suffering and the cross. Was that not really at the heart of the first temptation as Satan came to Adam and Eve in the garden? You know, there's an easier way to greatness and glory. There's an easier way to be like a god. This was the exact temptation that Jesus faced in the wilderness... Where Adam and Eve failed in the garden, Jesus did not fail in the wilderness. As Satan came to him and said, you know, there's no reason to go through the suffering and the pain the cross. Just make these rocks worship you. Just, you, you can have glory without the suffering. You can have glory without the cross. Jesus denies him. That's why Jesus was so harsh with Peter that when Peter confessed that he was Lord and, and Peter says, then Jesus tells him about his death and what must happen. And Peter says, no way am I going to let that happen to you. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, because he's saying the same thing Satan did. Yes, we want the glory and, and we want everything to be made new, but we don't need the suffering. We don't need taking up the cross. We don't need the cross. It's very countercultural because the Bible says, To be great, to be first, you must be last. You must be a servant. To live, you must die. To gain, you must lose. And this is a sermon that you guys, whether you're first or second grade or whether you've experienced a lot more of life, whatever it might be, you never grow out of this battle of of living for greatness right here, of rank, of position, of possession. So Jesus is going to tell us a couple things. First, And really just two points. True greatness 
is realized in humility and service. True greatness is realized in humility and service. Verse 35 says, and he sat down and he called the twelve. Him sitting down is taking a serious posture. This is what the teacher does. He sits down and you sit at his feet. He's telling them, come, you must listen to me. He sits down. <clears throat> and he says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all. <clears throat> he must be last of all and a servant of all. If anyone would be first, anyone would be great. He must be last of all and a servant of all. Greatness is not about power. It's not about position. It's not about possessions. It's not about performance or any other P word you can think of. Greatness is marked by humility and service. It's a disposition of the heart that is active in our lives. Humility really begins in the heart. That's where it lives out. To be last is is to be humble. It starts with humility. Those who are last and the servant of all. And greatness is attached to servanthood. As Christ tells us, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. We naturally all want to dominate, to be great, to be well thought of, to live a life that's set up where we serve ourselves and others serve us, where they at least don't get in our way of serving ourselves. Jesus turns that upside down. They shall be last, a disposition of the heart that is active in our lives, that considers others before ourselves. That's what it means to be last. Not that you lose at everything, but a disposition of the heart that is active in our lives, that considers others before ourselves. It considers others good. It considers the joy of others, the peace of others before yourself. You're considering not just yourself, but others around you. It's a disposition of the heart that is not angling for the promotion of self, accomplishing your own agenda, using all your time, your money, your resources on yourself, but considering and using your gifts for the sake of others. We have a real misunderstanding of this being last or this humility. And we think of humility to kind of play on Sunday school a little bit as sometimes maybe like a sort of woeful, quiet, passive demeanor. Like I'm humble, if I just keep my head down, I'm quiet, I stay in the shadows, I don't get in anybody's way. Humility is not being passive or quiet or being a doormat for anyone. Perhaps you've heard it, but it's this way. It's not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less, giving time and thought to others. That you're a servant of all. You you really can be a humble servant in two different ways, one out of strength and one by being servile. Uh, Servile has the idea of just 
like bending over backwards to make sure you never offend anyone or, or ever get in anyone's way, where you become a servant to everyone's opinion, a servant to the majority. You just, you kind of are just always a doormat for everybody. This sort of service isn't true service. It's, it's out of, honestly, out of fear or cowardice. Perhaps it's to look good, and it definitely delights in the fact that you are less. It takes delight in your humility. To be a servant out of strength, to be a servant out of the strength of the Lord is to decide to serve and honor others above yourself. It's done out of joy, and it's not done to make yourself look like less. It's done to delight in the elevation of others. It takes courage. So ultimately, humility is active. It's not just introspective. So there's ways that, honestly, I should be able to look at your calendar, at your day planner, at your bank app or your checkbook and see some humility there. Is your time all saved for you? Do you only consider yourself? Is your money all saved for you? Are your resources, is everything you're doing, how can I serve myself and how can I work it so others around me are serving me? Or are you truly considering others above yourself. Hebrews 10, we have that passage. Let's consider how to stir up one another for love and for good works. That the word consider there has the idea of studying one another. Even that is active. How, how can I get to know you, to spend time with you, to study you, to see what's going on in your life? How can I stir up love and good works in you? How can I be a blessing to you? I notice you. I not just notice me. I see what's going on in your life. I consider you, not just my own advancement, my own rank, but I consider others. He says you're a servant of all. Not just a servant to those who help advance your cause. Not just a servant to those who you really like and it's easier to serve. But you think of Jesus. He came as a servant to all. The suffering servant. He he was a servant to the leper who no one else would be near. He was a servant to him and set him free from his leprosy, set him free from being an outcast and and received him, invited him back into the community. He was a servant to Jairus, that ruler in the synagogue, a man of position and wealth, but who no doubt was working against Jesus until he had a tragic situation at home that his daughter needed rescued. Jesus was a servant, served that one. He was a servant to that that woman who was an outcast because she had had the hemorrhage of blood for 12 years and, and, and was, wasn't around and allowed around anyone. And she reaches out, touches Jesus in the midst of his busyness. And Jesus turns and he sees her and he addresses her and he listens to her. And he is a servant to her. Servant to the demoniac, a servant to the sinners as he eats with them. In fact, we see that as the, as the Pharisees would challenge him for being with sinners. He says, I have come to serve the sinner, to offer them salvation. He is a servant to all. And he is calling us to be a servant to all. In fact, the word there, to be a servant, is is diakonos, where, where we get the word deacon. 
Polycarp, who's an early church historian, one of the earliest, not historian, church father, one of the earliest we talk about, he actually uses this text here in Mark as he admonishes the deacons, saying that you should be walking according to the truth of the Lord, who was the servant of all. In other words, your deaconhood should mirror Jesus' messiahship. That he came to suffer, that he came to serve others, even the least of these. That's what your deaconship should look like, a servant to all. And as a Christian, that's what we should look like. A servant to all. We've said it a couple times now, but it's worth repeating. When we confess Jesus Christ as Lord, just as Peter did in chapter 8, we receive that divine benediction. Blessed are you. For God's revealed this to you. You are in a blessed position. You are a child of the King. And you receive that blessing. And immediately after you receive this divine call, take up your cross, follow me. What does that look like? In humility, be a servant to all. We don't just get to pick the divine benediction and cast off the call to discipleship. We are called to be a servant to all. Jesus is going to drive the point home with this illustration as he takes a small child here. He takes a small child in his arms. He says to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, and who <clears throat> receives not me, but him who sent me. The example here is not that the child is a picture of humility. The picture of humility is how you treat the child. A little bit is lost in context. In in that culture, it was far from the child-centric culture that we live in now. I heard Sinclair Ferguson once. Have you ever heard him preach? He is, I don't know, don't listen to him right before you come to me or you'll be disappointed in in me. But um, he just has a way of saying almost everything. And there was a debate going on, are we in a patriarchal society or a matriarchal society? And it's going back and forth. And he kind of interjected and said, I think we're in a kindergarten society. The kindergartner rules the day. <laughs> Life is set up around this child. You know, even church decisions are made on what makes our four-year-old and five-year-old the happiest, even though they can't consider outside of these two minutes. <clears throat> That's a rabbit trail I won't go down, but um, or I guess I only will go slightly down. That's what you say after you go down a rabbit trail, right? <clears throat> But in their context with, you know, infant mortality being so high, there's so many children died before the ages of of three, four, five, that the community around didn't invest much time or much care into these little ones. And then it was even utilitarian after that until they reached a certain age. They just needed help with the labors. And so there was a different view of of how they, they viewed children. And in the the Roman context, again, where Mark is writing these Christians in Rome, uh, abandonment and abortion was happening very, very often. In fact, as you read some of the earliest church literature, the for Justin Martyr wrote an apologetic or uh, the Didache, maybe you've heard of it, important books early in the first couple centuries of church history. And they deal extensively with not abandoning or aborting children. And that that Christians don't participate in that evil. 
And so he's, he's calling, and he's using this child as an illustration because this is his illustration to them in that context of this is the least important person. This little kid can do nothing for you. He has no power. He has no rank. He's not going to advance your cause. He can't pay you back. He has nothing to offer you to advance your greatness. But the one who serves him, that's kingdom greatness. And the one who serves him is not just serving him and blessing him and receiving him, but is also serving and blessing and receiving not just Jesus, but God who sent him. You receiving God, that is greatness. I'm just going to take a half step sideways and make an immediate application here for those who serve the little kids in our nursery and in our church. We have a bunch of little kids. I should congratulate Jana's parents as they're here celebrating the birth of their little one. We have a lot of little kids here. I just want to, can I both express gratitude and encouragement for those who work in the children's ministry. For someone who's never done it, I know how hard it is for you. I know it can be difficult. I know that it can be unrewarding. I know that the mindset can be, I've heard the conversation, I take care of my kids all week long, why would I spend all this time getting them ready to come to church so I can take care of them in the nursery at church for a few minutes? Or for those who don't have little ones in nursery and still serve and take care that way. Can I just encourage you that the Lord says that is greatness? That that receiving and loving and caring and serving this one and no one's going to make you a hero for doing it. They can't repay you except fill in the diaper you have to change. They can't advance your cause. And if it feels like, man, this, it makes for a long Sunday. This may, it, it's serving parents. It's serving these kids. Jesus says that is kingdom greatness, being a servant to the least of these. Let me encourage new moms. I know it's like a joy and a blessing, and you love no one more than that little baby that's with you. But I also know it's really difficult, and it can seem really lonely and unrewarding at times, that all my time... <clears throat> All my energies poured into this one little person. And everyone's super excited for you in the first couple weeks. And then everyone else moves on with their life. And you still are just this little one here. God would encourage us. The one who serves the least of these in humble service. That, that is kingdom greatness. All right. He finishes then in verses 38 through 41 and well here we see humility and service and then here humility in the putting away of rivalries verse 38 John said to him <clears throat> it's funny that Peter is almost always the one talking because we said it's been first-hand account from Peter he notes this time it was John not me Peter said to him teacher we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us Again, they're not grasping what Jesus is saying. The people are, the disciples are sort of shocked and dismayed. There's this person out here casting out demons. But you can see there's a couple clues in the text. It's not really that honest that they're worried about Jesus. They're worried about themselves in it all. If you remember last week, the 
disciples who didn't go on the Mount of Transfiguration, they're down in the valley and there's a demon-possessed boy and they're trying to cast a demon out and they can't do it. And they become the butt of jokes for the scribes and there's arguments going on and there's a whole fight going on and they're frustrated and confused and they're fighting with this person and in the end they ask Jesus, why couldn't we do that? And you see in there that they were relying on past experiences, past success. They were in faith and Christ's strength doing it because Jesus says, this, this, to do the, you need to pray to do this. You need to rely on my strength to do this. And so we get a little view in the picture here that I think the problem isn't so much that this guy's out there trying to cast out demons. It's that he's successful doing it. And they're a little upset about that. The other clue in the context is if you look at the end of that verse, it says we tried to stop him because he was following us or he was not following us. It's like the, uh, a little slip of the tongue. I mean, he's not following you, Jesus. <laughs> No, their hearts reveal. He's not following us. He, he's not part of our circle. He's not in our group. It, it doesn't count for our kind of own little personal kingdom building here. He, he's out there doing it. And he will not stop. You can see, it, it, this guy is not heretical. He's not out of bounds. He's just not part of the twelve. And in casting out these demons, he's not advancing their group. He's not advancing, as we would say, their brand. So Jesus responds, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. <clears throat> there is an essential unity among all true believers of Christ. Because again, we all share in that divine benediction if we confess Jesus Christ as Lord and we also share in that call of discipleship. And we're being told in this text, the disciples are being told, be thankful wherever truth is proclaimed. Be thankful. Be praiseful to, to, to our, our God when his kingdom is advancing even if it's not as you envisioned it advancing. And even if you're getting zero recognition in the kingdom advancing. We see this consistently throughout scripture. There, the story, less well known, but in the middle of Numbers, where there's two prophets, Medad and Eldad. Good twin names, if you ever have twins. And they're prophesying, and Joshua gets worked up about it and comes to Moses and says, hey, they're prophesying in the name of the Lord. And Moses said, are you worried about my reputation? If they're prophesying in the name of the Lord, why are you trying to stop them? What's the problem? You see, Joshua was trying to protect him and Moses and their authority, and he, they didn't want an outsider anyone outside of them we see it with Paul we mentioned this in Sunday school but in Philippians chapter one he's in prison and there's others who are kind of taking advantage out of rivalry at some level and proclaiming the gospel and getting a little bit of a following while Jesus is in prison and the followers of Paul are upset about this and Paul's like what does it matter to me Jesus is being proclaimed the gospel is being advanced and in that I rejoice Maybe the best illustration is John the Baptist. If you remember when he came proclaiming a sermon of repentance, he gained a, a decent following. <clears throat> and then Jesus shows up. 
And slowly his following leaves him and starts following Jesus. But there's a few loyal to John the Baptist and they're upset about it. And they say, do you see what's happening here, John? People aren't following you anymore. They're following Jesus. John tells him this is the point. He uses the example of the groomsmen getting the groom ready for the wedding. Again, in their culture, the groom would go off he would get his livelihood set up and make sure everything, all of his affairs were in order and everything was established. And then when he was ready, he would come back and receive his bride. Our context, we'll just change it a little for our context. For us, it would be like the wedding planner or the bridesmaids doing a bunch of work, helping the bride get ready for a wedding. So they do all this work getting ready for this big day. Then when the day comes, the back door is open and here comes the bride. Now, it would be ridiculous and foolish if the wedding planner and the bridesmaids at that point start getting upset. Like, why is everyone looking at her? Why is everyone paying attention to her? I helped get ready for this, too. Why is she getting all the attention? No, the bride is here. This is what all the work was for. That's what John says. It's not about him. It's not about his kingdom. It's not about his following. He's been preparing the way for Jesus. Jesus is here. I need to decrease that he might increase, John says. And in that we get insight into a real sign of Christian maturity and service. Can you celebrate the successes of others, other people, other churches, other ministries? Or does it reveal in your heart there's your own kingdom building? That it's really like I want the one to be used and I want people to know I'm the one who's being used. I'll be totally honest with you here. There's an application for all of you, but really you can just sit for a minute and watch me squirm under the weight of this application. This is a pastoral challenge. Is this idea of rivalry in the kingdom of God. To look at guys who you graduated with from seminary and you wonder, why is their church bigger than mine? I love Redeemer. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. But I look at them and think, well, they're, and so then for me, I can tell you my own sinful heart. Well, they're down south, of course. They're in the suburbs, of course. I was a better student. I'm a better, you know. Or when someone leaves your church and ends up at a church in the community and they've got good things going there the gospel's being preached that's a battle I face I would never think oh it's about my kingdom it's not but my heart starts to reveal okay is it in really humble service or does this rivalry reveal something that sometimes it's less about the gospel being proclaimed the kingdom being built and more about God using me in such a way that others will know that the kingdom is being built by what ministry I have going on. And you can plug yourself in there in your own lives. Kingdom greatness is humble service and the doing away with these rivalries that rejoices in the success of the kingdom, whether you had a part in it, anyone ever knows your name or not. And Jesus makes that point, one last illustration. He says, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. This is in the 
context of Christian fellowship, whether it's giving a cup of water to the disciples, but it says, because you belong to Christ. Someone who's helping in, in kingdom ministry, in church ministry. It, it doesn't matter how important and notable it is or how trivial it is. A work done for the sake of the kingdom, the name of God, is considered a great work. That person will not lose their reward. And as we saw, not only will they receive Christ, but they receive his Father. Again, just to encourage you in your life, in your service, your family, in your service to your church, and your just walk as a Christian, to be faithful, to do things in the name of Christ, the advancement of the kingdom, to fight that personal kingdom building, that, that personal advancement, that it becomes setting up how do I advance myself, use others to advance me, or at least protect myself from them getting in my way. Take an honest look. Are you pursuing kingdom greatness or have you been kind of shifted a little bit by culture? Pursuing greatness that is actually much more temporal. Final illustration. My senior, junior, senior high school, you know, I won some awards, some academic awards, some athletic awards. It was a big deal to me. Right now, those wards all fit in a small Rubbermaid container in an attic at a small house in Mink Shoals, West Virginia. I'm sure you've heard about it, right? You know? <laughs> what, is, what is that? The temporal success, temporal notoriety, it's gone in a moment. Mine lasted maybe four days. <laughs> maybe people last a little longer. Building up a kingdom for what? Jesus said, here is true greatness. He doesn't repudiate greatness. He just redefines it. Humility seen by overcoming rivalries and humility seen by being a servant to all. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it is a paradox and it reorients our life. Lord, pray that we would be humble servants, humble in your strength, Lord, not cowardice, not focused so much on us being low as we're focused on seeing others elevated, that we're not measuring our service by what it will do for our rank, by what we will get in return. Lord, but that no matter how mundane or who it is we're serving, Lord, done in faith to your name, Lord. It's not just done to them and for them, Lord, but unto you and to the Father. Lord, please work in our hearts. This needs to be spirit-led, so use the word and may the spirit produce, Lord, kingdom greatness in our hearts and minds.